The Cal Halbert Podcast. Hello, friends. Thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of the Cal Halbert Podcast. My guest this week is the Member of Parliament for Shrewsbury and Atcham, my former hometown and home constituency, Daniel Kaczynski. Uh, Many of you will know that I live in the northeast of England now, in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, so I'm very much a plastic Geordie. However, deep down, I am always still a Salopian. Mr Kaczynski managed to fit me in in his huge, hugely busy schedule, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. The Cal Halbert Podcast. Well, I'm very pleased to say that on the show today, the Cal Halbert Podcast, I've got the fantastic, right honourable Daniel Kaczynski, who is the Member of Parliament for my hometown, Shrewsbury. He's the Member of Parliament for Shrewsbury and Atcham. So a very, very big hello to you, Mr Kaczynski. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, how are you doing? Are you well? Are you doing okay in the pandemic? Uh, well, you know, um, I think um, we've had a series of uh, very difficult uh, uh, national um, crises. Obviously, with the Brexit issue was a very, uh, I think, a very emotional and a very difficult time for us. Uh, then, of course, Shrewsbury flooded terribly. Uh, and now we have the pandemic descending on us. So it's been quite a stressful uh, last few um, 12 months, but uh, obviously delighted with the way the vaccination program is going across the United Kingdom. I, I visited the um, vaccination centre in Shrewsbury last month, was very heartened by the efficiency of uh, how that programme was going. So I think all of us, after a long, dark period, in our lives are looking forward to inching back to some sort of sense of normality later on this year. Yes, I mean, the, the pandemic has, has affected a lot of us, lots of us in different ways in that I'm a stand-up comedian by trade. So all of the pubs and the clubs that I normally work in are, have all closed down. There, so I haven't been able to work for the best part of a, well, coming up to a year now. So, but that's not it's not to say that everyone else hasn't suffered and struggled as well particularly yourself in your role as we know you best as a member of parliament how has uh, parliament changed and adapted through the pandemic and how how has it affected your day-to-day work well i think i think one thing that we should i would like to say is of course being the first ever polish born british member of parliament um i am really great deal about what's going on in Poland. um with regards to this pandemic. But of course, a lot of businesses there in Poland have had to sink or swim of their own volition. Uh, yeah. I think take for granted in this country the fact that uh, we're the fifth largest economy in the world, that the government will come and support us and help us in times of crisis. That is not the case in many countries around the world. Uh, and it's only the fact that this country has such an extraordinarily strong credit rating uh, that we have managed to go and borrow hundreds of billions of pounds to give to companies and to individuals in order to keep them afloat during this very, very difficult period. Um, I'd like to say to you that when we first came into office, the Labour Party and others used the term uh, austerity. You know how uh, extraordinarily negative connotations the word austerity has. It conjures up something out of a a sort of Charles Dickens novel, doesn't it? (laughs) And yet, yet if we hadn't taken those extraordinarily difficult steps between 2010, when we came into office, and last year, 
in order to balance the budget, in order to get rid of the deficit, and we've reduced it from 153 billion a year down to less than 25 billion a year. Can you imagine the sort of economic mess that we would be in now? So when people say to you in the future, why is the government、uh, making these difficult decisions? Why why are they cut back? Why why do they feel so strongly about the national debt deficit? Governments in good times, I think, have to do the spade work and the hard lift lifting in order to. Insulate the United Kingdom against these periodic disasters, which seem to descend on us with alarming frequency. 2008, it was the global international financial crisis, which saw a meltdown in our banks. This year, it's been a pande- global pandemic, which has shut down the economy. There will be something else, I can guarantee you, in the next ten years. Uh, which descends on us like a plague of locusts, and we've got to be prepared. We've got to be prepared for that. So I'm very proud of of, of the role that this government has played、uh, over the last ten years, and making the British making the British answers watertight and get us ready for these、uh, terrible crises which descend on us. But how has it changed Parliament? Was、well, changed Parliament in the sense that、uh, everybody is obviously most people are working from home. Here in the House of Commons, in my office, it's like the Marie Celeste here in the House of Commons. <laughs>、um, here.、Uh, two, uh, researchers are working from home,、uh, and you know what's it been like? It's been. It's. I think、uh, for many of us, it's been very difficult from a from a well-being perspective. There are so many people who I know.、Um, Who found it difficult from、uh, a mental health perspective, and this is what really worries me. I understand the government had to make these very difficult decisions in order to protect the NHS. I understand that if they hadn't imposed these additional restrictions,、uh, they were being told that an extra five thousand people were going to be、uh, were going to be lost. But I just feel that in the short to medium term, we have created. A great deal of problems in terms of mental well-being, and when the pandemic、uh, is finally lifted, I and certainly many other、uh, members of parliament intend to scrutinise the government about funding for mental mental health. It's a sort of Cinderella, isn't it?、Mm. So, which is forgotten about, and yet we all, to one degree or another, through the course of our lives, suffer in one way or another from mental health issues. These are illnesses, like other physical、uh, ailments, they need to be treated, and people need to people need to understand the importance of helping people get through great mental challenges as they have been at the moment. Very easy. If you live on your country estate, a countryside with twenty acres of garden and the yeah, forest yeah. next to you, all the rest of it. If you are living in a very small apartment、um, with, let's say, two families sharing it and, and children,、um, I, I can imagine the last few the last few months will have been extremely difficult for millions of Britons up and down our country, and that's what we need to focus on supporting them. You're absolutely right in that mental health is a, is a huge. It,、uh, it, that's a pandemic in itself. That the mental health issues and、uh, 
I, I, it's, it, it's something you need to work at and something you need to work on. I, it, I, and I point back to what you were, you were just saying then, in that if you have a broken leg, you're not going to walk around with a broken leg. You're going to get it fixed. So if your mental health is bad, you need to get your mental health fixed as well. And I think we need to all, so I think, it, I can't remember whether it was Prince William or Prince Harry at one stage were talking, going public and, and talking about mental health. I think all of us in whatever positions of responsibility we're in have a duty to talk about mental health and our own mental health. Um, I think that there have been times in my life where, um, you know, with the stress and pressure of work and one's own experiences, of course, Mental health can be damaged, or it can, or, or it can be, you know, made vulnerable. And I think that um, we should all of us talk about it more openly, so that there isn't the stigma that there once was about mental health. There is nothing shameful or embarrassing of admitting to your friends, and family, and your colleagues that you're suffering from mental health problems, um, and that you should come forward and seek guidance support i think that's extraordinarily important because as i say to you um so many people in our own country and, and, and around the world can and will have experienced to one degree or another significant mental health problems in these unprecedented times where you have been in many cases trapped inside with no ability to do all the things that normally give you Pleasure and satisfaction, even even if it's just going down to your local pub. At the end yeah. of the day, we are very sociable creatures, uh, human beings. Yes. We enjoy sitting round a fire in the pub and having our pints and and, and chatting with friends. What's All your that... tipple, Mister Kaczynski? What's your tipple? Oh well, I'm a whiskey drinker, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I had my whiskey on the rocks. I've always been a whiskey drinker. I, I generally tend to drink um, um, American or Scottish whiskey as a tipple, yes. Splendid. Yeah, I'm very boring in that. I, I tend to go for a, for a lager of some sort is what I normally go for. Uh, a, a lager or a pale ale is my go-to. Well, Shropshire pale ale, of course. Is the <laughs> of course, <best>. yes. Salopian, <laughs> salopian, a pint of salopian, that's it. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, you did mention earlier on you're the first Polish-born Member of Parliament in Britain. And tell me about this. Did you always want to be a politician? Because I know, I'll be honest, I did a bit of stalking, Mr Kaczynski. I had a look through your your Wikipedia page and it said you were involved with the business entertainment industry to begin with. But had you always wanted to be a politician? Well, I said to my mother uh, when I was 11 years of age that I wanted to be a politician. And uh, of course, you know, I think the Chinese have a saying, when you do a job which is like a hobby, which I suspect you, you, you have, when you do a job which is like a hobby, you'll never do a day's work in life. Yeah. Can you imagine coming to work every day? And can you be, imagine being paid uh, for doing something which is in, instinctively, inherently a hobby, a passion, and you have yeah. a zeal for it? I think for me, what what sparked it is we left Poland in 1978. My, my family were vehemently, fiercely anti-communist. And when I came back after the martial law was lifted for the first time in, in March of 83, I used to spend an inordinate time with my Polish grandfather. And 
he told me, I mean, I, I listened to him and I saw it firsthand. What happens to a country if the state is omnipotent and all-powerful? And there are no checks and balances on the state. The media is neutered. And one party is in complete, complete, unadate, unadulterated control of everything with no sense of checks and balances. That was communist Poland. And, of course, my grandfather, the communists, took everything away from him. Landos were, were to be punished. And he died, he, I remember going to see him in what can only be described as one-bedroom studio flat in downtown Warsaw, 36-metre-square studio flat. And I used to cook him lunch every time I came to see him. And uh, he had the equivalent of what is a camp stove in his uh, kitchen. I used to cook on that. And it was seeing a great man brought down so terribly by this communist system there was so much hatred by the communists. They believed that there should be no difference between people, that nobody should be able to own their own property, uh, and that the state would own and control everything. And I saw him and millions of other Poles brought down low by that oppressive uh, extremist regime. And that's why, one of the reasons why Margaret Thatcher sparked interest in me at a very young age, because... Up until Margaret Thatcher, we had consensus in Europe. It was something called detente, that would have detente with the Soviet Union, that would realize that the Soviet Union had a, an equal right to control half of the world and, it, and impose its will on countries ranging from <clears throat> Somalia uh, through to, uh, through to uh, Afghanistan and all the rest of it. And it was Margaret Thatcher who was the first Western politician who said, no, we're going to take these people on. Because we believe in freedom, because we believe in democracy, we're not going to continue just to allow half of Europe to be behind what was at that age euphemistically called the Iron Curtain. Yes. And this is why I'm so proud of her and Ronald Reagan, because they took on the Soviet Union. They, and they said, we are not going to tolerate this totalitarian regime, and we are going to outspend you militarily. We're going to put so much pressure on you. Ultimately, you will have to back down and allow your people and the other satellite nations that control uh, to be free. Now, in our generation, what really frightens me is the expansion of China mm -hmm. and the line uh, conduct of China. We've seen recently skirmishes between China and, the in and India on their border. They've hoovered up uh, islands in the South China Sea, as you know, these atolls, which they've taken control of and brought concrete onto them, turning them into giant aircraft carriers and military radar installations. The United, I don't know whether your listeners know, but the United Kingdom has had to spend a fortune uh, with countries like Australia and America just having freedom of navigation exercises through the South China Sea because the Chinese are trying to turn the South China Sea into a Chinese lake. And China is behaving. China is a major communist global economic and military power. And I just think that for future generations, Britain will have to cooperate much more closely with Japan, Australia, and others in the Far East 
to make sure that this communist dictatorship of China does not end up attempting to be like the Soviet Union when I was a child in pursuing global domination and global expansion. This is a permanent member of the US Security Council, a situation peculiar to only five nations in the world, the United Kingdom being one of those. And I think the standards for those five permanent members of the UN Security Council must be and should be that much higher than for anybody else, given the privileged position that we have in the United Nations. You mentioned just before then you said that when you were, I believe you said you were 11 when you told your mother you wanted to be a, a politician. What did your parents do? Because you, you mentioned that um, uh, Margaret Thatcher was an influence to you, so she was the one that stood up and said, no, we're not doing that with Ronald Reagan saying, Mr Gorbachev, tear down that wall, and all these sort of things. But what did you, what did your parents do? Did, did they influence you in, in politics at all? No, not at all. There wasn't anybody in my family uh, either side who were remotely involved in politics. Um, So I'm the first politician. My my, uh, father is an engineer um, and my mother is a a chef. Um, Neither of them are particularly interested in politics, but it was always (laughs) me. I, I I remember, look, I was the chairman of the University of Sterling Conservative Association. And in 1992, we were told, remember that election between John Major and um, Neil Kinnock, where uh, the Sun newspaper had a light bulb of Neil Kinnock on the day before the 92 election and said, well, the light, if this guy gets in, the last person to leave the United Kingdom, turn the light out. Well, I well, you know, it's funny. Kinnock. It's funny you say that. That that particular front page is just before my time. However, uh, I worked for a for a, um, a a short period of time at Love Sport Radio, which I believe was the first time we met. Was uh, I was hosting a show with yes. Kelvin McKenzie um, on the on the morning show, and he had a, a big <laughs> he had a big print of that very headline that that you were saying. He had that in the office. Well, that was, and it's a bit, 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 bit of your time, but it, it was, it was, um, it was a very difficult election, and um, the, the, the whole consensus was that the Conservative Party would lose, and that Neil Nick would become Prime Minister. And I saw John Major on his soapbox. It was famous. He had a soapbox which he used to stand uh, in front of crowds, and he said, that "We're going to surprise the electorate next week." And I went to, um, you know how poor students are, and I had no very little money. I had uh, three jobs at university. Oh, what were they? Uh, one, one of them was cleaning uh, a house, top to bottom, because I found an advertisement in the local newspaper, and um, I spent five hours every Saturday cleaning a family home, top to bottom. Toilets, garage, everything. Hoovering, dusting, cleaning. And I think I was paid, it was 1991, I was paid the grand sum of 15 pounds and 10 pence, which is a lot of money in those days. Then I had, I was studying French at university and I had um, some pupils, some youngers who I was teaching French to. And in the summer, I, I had a job pulling pints in the local pub. And but I had something like £600 left until the summer uh, holidays when I restarted my job in the local pub. I went down to the bookies, and the bookies were the bookies were offering five to one odds 
for a major Tory majority of more than 20. And I put 500 quid. I, I had 600 pounds left and I put five, I took 500 pounds out of my bank account and I put it on the Tories to win them with a majority of over 20. At five to one, at five to one odds. So you can imagine the amount of money that I got in 1992. I still have the bookies slip <laughs> from 1992 when I went into uh, uh, bookies in, in, in Sterling. I took, 500, I took 500 pounds out of the 600 pounds and I put it on the Tories to win. And I knew they were going to win. I just had a gut feeling in my heart. I, I looked at John Major, I looked at Kinnock. I thought, no, I can't see Neil Kinnock as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And I put my money where my mouth was, and I won a lot of money. I had to buy a lot of pints in the student <laughs> bar. When they found out, when things found out, I had to buy an awful lot of pints for the next few nights. But anyway, it was a great success. <laughs> well, I hope you bought yourself a nice bottle of whiskey to hide away from everybody, though, so you could keep Oh, I, I, I always have a bottle of whiskey somewhere tucked away, yes. <laughs> you need to in this job. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, as you said earlier on, I'll, I'll go back ever so slightly, first Polish-born British Member of Parliament, but am I right in thinking you're also the tallest Member of Parliament as well? Yes, I am. But but if I can focus on, on the Polish thing, um, we are extraordinarily proud, uh, you know, that uh, uh, many of us are here because our ancestors came over during the Second World War, even when the, the Battle of Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, there were more, more Polish pilots in the Battle of Britain than any other foreign contingent. One in four pilots in the Battle of Britain is Polish. And the Polish 303 squadron shot down more enemy aircraft than any other squadron in the Battle of Britain. Wow. And when we had a dinner recently at the RAF Club with Lord Tebbit, half the table were, there were 50 of us around the dining room table. Lord Tebbit was our guest speaker. He says, The Luftwaffe and Royal Air Force were so evenly matched in the summer of 1940. Not surprisingly, they were evenly matched, but the Germans were shooting down more British planes than we were shooting down theirs, and we were starting to lose Battle of Britain. And it was the Poles coming in such huge numbers that tipped the balance to the British side in the Battle of Britain. Because, of course, as you know, you can replace the planes relatively easy. It's very difficult to replace the pilots. It takes a long time to to train up a pilot. And yet these Polish pilots, because their country had been taken over by Nazi Germany, um, their, their cities were being um, bombed and destroyed. Their women folk were being uh, tortured and oppressed by the Germans. They had nothing to lose. Mm. They had nothing to lose. And they came to this country almost kamikaze-esque. And they were determined to fight uh, for freedom. And I'm very, very proud, and very, very proud as somebody of Polish origin, the extraordinary contribution that they made during the Battle of Britain. And I'm very, very proud of the contribution that Poles are making to the United Kingdom today. As you know, if you want to get have some uh, internal work done in your home, whether it's plastering or, or any of the rest of it, how many of us know 
somebody who used a Polish plumber or a painter or a bricky or whatever. Very hard work, very strong work ethic. They've integrated in, into our society, and I'm extraordinarily proud of the contribution that they make. But, you know, some of my Polish friends say to me this, you're a traitor because you've come here, you've benefited from the British way, and now you've, you campaign for Brexit, and yes. you're going to make it more difficult for other Poles to come to this country. You know, and I say to them this, my, lo- my loyalties are to the United Kingdom, and of course... Brexit doesn't mean that we put land, uh, that we put mines in the English Channel and barbed wire on the cliffs of Dover. Of course, we are going to continue to encourage and um, and facilitate highly trained people come and contribute to our society. But it's going to be done like in Australia and like in other countries on the points-based system. If you have a qualification, if you can speak English. If you have convinced a British entity to hire you, come in and work. But at the but the previous policy was racist, and a lot of students I talk to don't understand that because think about this: what we had before is the Romanian or the Bulgarian automatic right to enter our country and work and gain benefits and all the rest of it. The Indian doctor or the Bangladeshi nurse, didn't. So we had a complete, unlimited, unfettered access for our fellow white Europeans who could come in, no rules, no regulations. And yet for Commonwealth countries and other other countries, there was much greater hurdles that they had to jump over. I'm not interested in your colour. I'm not interested in your religion. I don't care where you come from. I'm interested in whether or not you have the right qualifications and whether or not you have convinced the British entity to hire you and whether or not you can speak English and whether you want to contribute to our society. That's the way that we should assess people coming into our country, not from which country that they come from, but what qualifications they have. And this is why I'm so passionate about Brexit, because one of the things that we can do finally, is to troll our borders. And by the way, may I just say this to you? Um, I I don't want immigration to be in the top three issues at any general election campaign. I want to focus on the differences between the two political parties, on the NHS, on education, on balancing the budget, all of those things. I want to have an immigration system which gives so much confidence to the British people that they won't even categorize immigration in the top five issues at any general election. And surely that must be right. That is a good uh, objective to have. I'll be honest with you, Mr. Kaczynski, I actually disagree with you politically on the Brexit uh, debate. I I was a Remainer or a Ramona, uh, however you wish to to, uh, name me. However, what I do hold higher is democracy. And what I was happy with was the fact that I lost the referendum. I voted in the referendum. I lost and I accepted the result. What I don't like is the people that are the Ramonas, the people that wanted to remain and won't accept democracy. And that uh, I feel is personally, I feel it's anti-British not to accept democracy. 
So that 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 that's what the 19 uh, that, sorry that's what the 2019 election was all about, because the British people in their silent, quiet, silent majority, uh, irrespective of how they voted, uh, realized, and this is why the Prime Minister's slogan was so ingenious: Brexit done. Uh, most British people, irrespective of how they voted in the referendum, saw the chaotic, sclerotic. Highly embarrassing gridlock that had descended onto the House Commons. It was starting to make us turning us into a laughing stock. Yes. Uh, internationally, it was highly humiliating. And they said this: irrespective of our normal um, way in which we vote, this issue needs to be resolved, and we're going to vote for the man who is going to do it. And. That was the one reason I remember sitting down with Boris Johnson. I had two private meetings with him, half an hour each, uh, before uh, I voted for him to be leader of the Conservative Party. I remember sitting down with him, taking brought into his office, half an hour first. We had our discussion. Then a week later, I had another half hour discussion with him. It's the first time I've really sat down one to one with him, and I was so exhausted and uh, de- debilitated by the whole process, he gave me hope. He said, I'm going to get, Bre- I am going to get Brexit done. We are going to leave on the deadline and we're going to, you know, we're going to sort it all out. Now, when you've, when you've been, I, mean, I wish you'd have been in the House of Commons in the previous parliament where, you know, some of the Remainers were holding a gun to our heads, quite frankly, uh, and refusing to allow that to happen. And the people's vote, people said to me, well, why didn't you give, why didn't you have a people's vote? Can you imagine if we had gone back to the electorate and the decision had been 48-52 the other way? Well, then there would have been like the final of, Wimbledon tennis, you know, the best of whatever it is, sets. I mean, this could have just carried on and on and on. And to be the first to do anything is always very, very courageous. Let's not forget the people of Ireland, Denmark, Netherlands and France have all voted against the European Union in national referenda. And what's happened? They've been told You've made a mistake. You need to vote again until you get it right. Well, this is the first time on the history of the European Union where the electorate, rightly or wrongly, have decided something and it's been implemented. I find that fascinating because I'm, I'm a politician. I'm very interested in democracy and making sure that the, if the electorate speak, uh, that elective instruction is carried out. If you don't carry it out, as a politician, you're playing with fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And as I say, okay, I, it's exactly the same principle that I have for, for for the referendum in a general election. It's regardless of who I vote for, I accept whoever has won, simply down to the fact that I respect democracy, and then that's simply simply how how I feel. And that's exactly what I said. I I now live in Newcastle upon Tyne, uh, and my constituency voted to remain. However, I live in a country and a nation that has voted to leave therefore i will respect the outcome of the of, of the referendum and i don't see how how that is difficult for people to comprehend to do you ever find it difficult to vote 
in in Parliament in ways of your constituency that may necessarily go against what you believe? Or do you always vote for what you believe rather than what your constituents want? Oh, well, that's a very question. Um, look, I campaigned for Brexit, by the way, heavily, and my constituency, and by the way, I'm appalled that you've left Shropshire, because how on earth <laughs> you could leave God... I left for work, Mr. Kaczynski, that's all it was. <laughs> how, how, on earth, how on earth you could leave God's own county is beyond me. But anyway, um, I campaigned for Brexit, and my constituency voted for Brexit. Now, that was a fascinating thing for me, that, because if the constituency had voted Remain, and let's say it voted Remain by a large margin, it would have been very difficult for me to continue to campaign for enacting Brexit as quickly as possible, because then I would have been going against the wishes of my electorate. Yes. No, I think, I think you always, if you, unless you have a sort of death wish, uh, you always try to take into consideration uh, the mood, the palpable mood of the electorate. And I'll give you one classic example. I am now campaigning for um, assisted dying in this country uh, because I went to see a marvelous, wonderful constituent of mine in Garden, a little village just outside of Shrewsbury, 70 year old man, a teacher. He and his wife, all sorts of wonderful plans for their retirement. Um, he can't. He does. He can't move. He can't do anything. He's completely incapacitated. The only thing he can do is to speak through a machine. And he called me in to say, "Mr. Kapczynski, I think the time has come for a change in the law and assisted dying." As a Roman Catholic, I said to him. I'm sorry, I'm, that's not something I'm going to vote for. It's just, it's not possible. Anyway, he, he carried on quietly, patiently lobbying me and asking other people in similar circumstances to come and see me. And it finally persuaded me to realize, and I said to him, by the way, I said, why don't you go to Switzerland? And what he said to me will stay with me forever. He said, no. An Englishman, I want to die in England. Why should we force people to leave their homes, leave their families, leave their loved ones, fly to a fun country, stay at a sort of hotel type of place in order to terminate their lives? I would, do every, I'm, I would do everything possible to keep somebody alive if they want to be alive. But yes. if they're in the sort of state where they the pain is too much for them. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong for the state. I, I don't believe in the state controlling every aspect of your life. And at, right at the end, if you are ready to go and you don't want to put your family through the pain and suffering that you are going through and they are going through, I believe that the individual should have the right at that juncture to say, I'm ready now. I'm ready to go. That's a huge, we talk about rights for the individual. The greatest right that you have is what happens to you towards the end of your life. And I'm very, very concerned, and I will continue to fight with others. We're hoping for a vote later this year in the House of Commons on the sister dying. That right must be with the individual and with their families, not with the state. 
Yes, it's all about quality of life, isn't it? And 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 I don't mean to to bring it down, but it's I've always felt strongly for assisted dying in that um there there are times where you see people and I don't want to make a mockery of it, but like you'd say I, you wouldn't do this to your dog. You wouldn't let your dog go through something like this. So why should we allow people to go through something like this? It should be something that we, well, we, look, we uh, should look after. I mean, a classic example. I mean, my beloved, you know, stepfather who died, um, kept artificially alive, you know, on a life support machine and for a very long time. And we saw the extraordinary pain and suffering that he went through. Um, if you love somebody, if you love, if you genuinely love somebody, as we all do, and if they are ready to go and they are asking to go, I think it is the height of cruelty. And actually, I would say it's even unchristian uh, to force them against their will to continue to live, particularly bearing in mind if the pain is too strong for them to... Uh, persevere. And by the way, you know, you and I touch with um, healthy, uh, you know, it's death is something that you think about in, in the distance. But each one of us, the only thing that, the only thing I can guarantee us both is death and taxes. Uh, it will come, it will come to us. And at some stage, you've got to, we've got to get ready for it in the sense that, you know, I'm not afraid of death. I, I, I would be ready for death when it comes because I'm a Christian. And I believe in an afterlife, but but I just believe it's the it's the it's the right of each person under those circumstances to be able to decide for themselves with their family. Less power for the state, more power for the individual. What do you do to relax, Mister Kaczynski? Do you do you do you like to read a book? Do you do you garden? Do you sunbathe? What do you do? What do you like to do to relax? <laughs> Well, of course, until the lockdown happened, uh, I uh, am an avid golfer. And Ooh, what's I your handicap? Golf course. Uh, well, it's terrible, actually. It's 15. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I forgot to say to you, well, to, to answer your previous question, yes, I'm the tallest ever member of Parliament. Oh, um, yes, yes. I'm at 6'9", six, um, so I'm officially giant, would you believe? <laughs> Because anything over six foot eight is officially a giant. And uh, the Guinness Book of Records, when I first became an MP 15 years ago, um, spent time with me during the whole course of the day measuring me. Because would you believe you are a slightly different size when you get up in bed to when you go to sleep at night? I mean, it's fractional <laughs> millimeters. Um, but six foot nine, and officially a giant. And of course, I've had to have clubs specially made for me. Um, <laughs> I, I blame the class. That's why I'm such a bad golfer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I mean, it's marvellous because what happens is when I go on the golf, it's the only time when I'm, you know, um, I completely relax. I go on the golf course in Hondover near Shrewsbury. Um, I have my friends there. They didn't talk to me about politics. They know I'm there to relax. And I have a wonderful time. But here in London, when I'm in London, I swim a lot. Yes. I try to swim three or four times a week. When you reach 49, you're constantly fighting the bull of the bulge. <laughs> and so you are constantly having to swim and constantly having to play golf in order to keep the weight off that the whisk is putting on. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you've got your. I think you're. I think you're well deserved to go up to St Andrews, have some nice Scottish whiskey, and have a round of golf up there. <laughs> as long as I don't bump into President Trump, former President Trump. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yes, very, very true. You say, I think you're a great guy. You're a great guy. Believe me, totally great. Uh, have you? Uh, no, have good you... accent. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Have you spoken to Mr. Trump at all? Did you? Did your paths cross when he came over? I haven't spoken to him, but would you believe I was taken uh, to, uh, I don't think I should be admitting to this, I was, when I was on a trip to America, I was taken uh, at one stage to his golf club, a place called mar a lago Yes. And when you go, in, when you go inside, it, it's like a, a version of a, it's a sort of French, kitsch French Renaissance style. Inside golf club, so it's a sort of Versailles type interior design of a golf course, if you can imagine such thing. Yes. So the man is very ostentatious. Yeah, let's put it like that. <laughs> Did you have a quick round of golf while you were there, though, or was it just a, a passing visit? No, it was just a it was just a brief lunch. We were taken there to have lunch and 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 to meet a few people. But uh, uh, no, I didn't manage to play golf there. No, I'm, I'm regretting. <laughs> regret. Maybe maybe he'll send me advice next time. <laughs> Who knows? You can respond by saying, "So long as you're not there, that's that's all right. We'll yeah. play." <laughs> but, but 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 let me just say one other thing about the European Union, because of course, interestingly, um, I believe that uh, uh, you know. We, uh, we've now signed trade deals. I mean, they said to us, you are too inconsequential, too small to be able to navigate the global stage, tiny island, and uh, you're, you need the crutch of the European Union in order to be able to negotiate with America or Australia and all the rest of it. Isn't it extraordinary that this tiny island of ours has managed to negotiate bilateral free trade agreements with 68 countries around the world, totaling some 900 billion pounds a year. And some of the trade deals, like the one with Japan, are slightly better for the United Kingdom than we had the deal through the European Union. Now, I find extraordinary. Um, fair enough, if I was a Latvian politician, uh, with a population of 2 million uh, perched next to Russia. Somebody said to me, you know what? You've got 2 million people. You need to come into a larger block. You need to give up some of your sovereignty. You need to give up some of your decision-making process. Uh, give up your currency. We'll run the currency for you. and We'll do all the rest of it. Would I join? I don't know. I, I haven't put myself in that context. But as the fifth largest economy in the world and a permanent member of the UN Security Council, we are starting to demonstrate that a country of our size can negotiate of her own volition. We're going to be joining the CPTPP, you know, the, the specific trading bloc. And I think the future of the country is very, very rosy, uh, very, very profitable. Uh, for international export and global expansion of our economy. I have every confidence in this country and I have every confidence in the people of this country. And if I'm wrong, by the way, and if Brexit is a complete uh, uh, dog's breakfast, then 
I would probably be thrown out and the people will choose somebody else, somebody new, who will take them back to the European Union. Fair enough. But it's the democratic process. We had a vote in 1975. British people in that vote decided to stay in. And we had another 40 years after that referendum before deciding to finally leave. And this is very, very important. Uh, the other point is, of course, the United Kingdom. I've represented the constituency, as you know, on this English-Welsh border for 16 years. I haven't said anything about the divergence and the differences appearing on the border for 16 years, but now I'm starting to speak out. As Cardiff and London increasingly diverge, and you know you're pulling a material at both ends, where does it end? rips in the middle, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And we border communities are at the coalface of seeing from a pragmatic perspective the impact on our constituents and our communities of that extraordinary divergence. And whether, it, whether you are a cattle farm and, you're, and you've got land on both sides of the border and you're grappling with bovine TV, whether you are a patient and you're going to be treated differently on either side of the border, whether it's tuition fees, it, but all of those things, but I tell you what's really accentuated it, uh, in my mind is the pandemic and the extraordinary divergence between Cardiff and London. You would have thought that in a national emergency, all parts of the United Kingdom would have come together and that we would have had a cohesion for the whole of this island. And yet, what have we seen? We've seen the greatest possible divergence between the component parts. One of my counselors, Mr. Hignett Ponsby, he said, I've got grandchildren in England, I've got grandchildren in Wales, I can see those grandchildren, but I can't see those grandchildren. And it broke his heart that he couldn't cross the border and just go a couple of miles across the border to see his grandchildren. In the post-Brexit context, if I may say so, sir, we are like raft crossing the sea, and we need to bind the component wooden parts of this raft as tightly to one another as possible. Otherwise, you sink. The water starts to seep up. What's happening with these devolved, uh, devolved parliaments is they're trying to pull the raft apart. And when you do that, you ultimately sink. I would like to see, I would like to see unionists in this country, rather than hiding under a stone, rather than just being quiet for fear of the denigration uh, and hostility that we get on social media, having the temerity uh, to want to promote the union. I think unionists, whether they are in Wales, Scotland, or England, or Northern Ireland, need to come together now and take on the nationalists in an unprecedented way. Uh, because I can see this island slowly disintegrating unless the unionists enter the fray and say, sorry, we've tried this experiment, it's not working for us. And in the post-Brexit context, we need to see how we can pool the extraordinary wealth of talent and expertise and dynamism and innovation that is spread around these islands into collective effort to promote the United Kingdom collectively 
And by the way, I speak to you as somebody who's from Poland. I'm neither English nor Welsh. I'm British. And yes. there are millions of us who don't connect with any of the company. We think of ourselves as British. And I'm very proud of the fact that I'm British, not English or Welsh, British. What's next for you, Mr. Mr. Kaczynski? You, you mentioned ever so uh, briefly earlier that you were saying that you're going to start campaigning for uh, a few causes that you feel very strongly about. But let's say for, uh, for argument's sake, the pandemic ended tomorrow. What's next for you? Well, I think, from, I mean, I can talk to you ad nauseum when we meet at Shrewsbury itself uh, and all the top priorities I have for my constituency. But I think if, I, if I'm talking about a, a wider context, for me, I've spent the last three years learning Polish fluently um, and I can speak it and read it and write it fluently. I think those of us who have European backgrounds are going to have to if we're in politics, spend a great deal of time in working on bilateral relations with the, these countries. Um, mm-hmm. I'm writing a report a, a, about something called the Three Seas Initiative at the moment, which are 12 countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And they're called the Three Seas because collectively they border three seas, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, and the Adriatic Sea. And they're cr- creating quite homogenous entity central and eastern europe and i'm interviewing all the ambassadors of all 12 countries and it's fascinating to get the very very different narrative perspective from countries in central and eastern europe let's not think a moment that the franco-german axis which has controlled the uh, planning of the european union for the last five decades is a is a uh, unique voice there are other voices in, in europe and they all say to me, well, you may have left the European Union, but you haven't left Europe. And it is going to be extremely important for the United Kingdom to reach out to and build very strong relations with countries like Poland, Romania, uh, Hungary, you know, and uh, Croatia and others and the Baltic states, because there's nothing more important for me than NATO. NATO is an organization that has kept the peace on our continent for over 70 years. It hasn't lost a square inch of territory since its inception. And yet there are people in Brussels who say, no, we can't rely on the British and the Americans anymore. We have to form our own single European army. I think a single European army which pushes away countries like America, Canada, Britain, Norway, Iceland, Turkey, and others that are inextricably linked to the common defense of our continent, but that are not who are not members of the European Union. I think anything which chips away at the solidity and strength and unity of, of NATO uh, is very dangerous, and it will be giving the green light to instability and for nefarious states uh, to try their luck when it comes to trying to destabilize our continent. Macedonia just joined NATO, making 30 nations, 30 nations part of NATO. It's a goal, being a member of NATO is like having a, a gold club card, you know, in your wallet. There's nobody else in the world that has this sort of level of protection and prestige from a de- defense. So, of course, working in Poland and other countries to make sure that they they are bound to the British way of thinking uh, on our European context is very is, is, 
it's difficult because it's going against the power of the Franco-German access. But I'll tell you one thing I will do. If any Polish government attempts to ditch the Polish currency, we will take them to court, um, demand a, a referendum. No, no people in any European country have voluntarily ditched their currency. Don't you find that fascinating? Each country, the politicians have decided to get rid of their currencies. And the former German Chancellor, Helmut Kohl, said, I knew I would lose a referendum on getting rid of the Deutschmark. We knew that people wouldn't accept it, so we just introduced the euro anyway. Mm. And that there isn't a single country. And now there are eight countries that still are not part of the Eurozone, but they are contractually obliged to join at some stage in the future. There is only one country, now that we have left, can you guess which is the one country with a permanent opt-out from the Eurozone in the European Union? One country without a permanent opt-out. There's only one. I would guess either us or... No, no, not us, because we've left. Oh, right, okay. Um, the Czech Republic. Oh, Denmark. Oh, I, Denmark only, I only guessed only... Czech Republic because I went there a, a few few years ago and they still haven't got the euro. So I only punted that. <laughs> uh, well, well, nearly. Um, Denmark is the only country on the continent of Europe that is a member of the European Union and has a permanent opt-out in the Eurozone. So all of these other countries are, when they joined the European Union, they signed an accord, which is at some stage in the future, they have to ditch their own currency and adopt the euro. So the pan-European, and I love teasing you about the European Union as a remain, but, <laughs> but think, think about it. Think about it. They have they have a single president, Madame von der Leyen, as you know, single parliament, now a single currency. Now they're talking about a single European army. Now those are the attributes, those are all the fundamental building blocks of a of a sovereign nation. And I just feel that um, the United Kingdom, you say, what are we going to do? I tell you what we're gonna do. The United Kingdom is going to spearhead an alternative to the European Union um, so that future generations of any country, be they Poland or the Czech Republic or Denmark, they can say, look, we've got two options. We can join the supranational federalist state, we can give up our currency, we can you know, give up sovereignty and we can be part of that supranational state. No other part of the world is attempting to do a similar thing, but hey, well, it's happening on our continent. We can do that, or we can join the alternative, which is a free trading area promoted by Britain, countries like Britain, Norway, America, Canada, all around the North Atlantic. We can join an alternative whereby we just trade one another and we protect one another from NATO, but that's it. And I think our continent is mature enough to be able to have various options. It shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all, take it or leave it. That's very important because one thing I've learned as a politician over the last 16 years is that people change their minds frequently. Um, and 
generations have a completely different perspective. And I just think that we need to have constantly two alternative models so that people can robustly challenge the, the viability of each model and decide which one of those two they want to join. Mr. Kaczynski, I've got one final question for you, and that is, who of your show business friends would you like to see on this podcast? <laughs> I don't really have a lot of show business friends, to be honest <laughs> with you. I'm not really a show business type of p- person, but uh, look, I mean, who would I like to see uh, on, your prog- on your program? That's a difficult one. That's a very difficult one, but perhaps let me think. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you why I... Um, who's a very controversial character, um, but who I've got on well well with, well, is Alex Salmond. Alex Salmond? Alex Salmond. We were very close, we were very close, and he was a member of parliament, and um, I've appeared on, on his programmes, and uh, of course, as you know, he is challenging now the SNP government in an unprecedented way. Um, but uh, Alex Salmond, I always admired for his... Um, for the way in which he conducted uh, his policy discussion on the floor of the House of Commons. Um, and I, he's somebody who, who yes, I, I would say Alex Hammond is the first person that springs to mind. I'll probably get into trouble for saying that. There you are. <laughs> well, he's on the list. Uh, Mr. Kaczynski, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And I look forward to the next time I'm allowed to come down to Shrewsbury and we'll have a pint of Salopian together and maybe a round of golf. <laughs> Yes, and by the way, may I just say, um, I, we, we get on, but of course, we fundamentally disagree because he's a <laughs> Scottish nationalist and I'm a unionist. But that's the beauty of it. Please don't think that you, know, you see the Prime Minister's questions, you see us shouting at each other, jeering, all the rest of it. There are a lot of cross-party friendships that are built up here in the House of Commons. And please don't for a minute think that we're all, you know, putting strychnine in each other's teeth. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of cross-party friendships here. (laughs) Mr. Kaczynski, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The Cal Halbert Podcast. And there we go, my friends. That was my chat with the MP for Shrewsbury Natchum, Daniel Kaczynski. If you enjoyed it, please, please, please share it with all of your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a future episode. If you can, give us five stars. That really, really helps other people to be able to find the podcast. And we were also setting up a new Patreon account. So, you know, have a look at that. It'll be in the notes. See you next week. The Cal Halbert Podcast. You've been listening to a Calvert Media production.